Hello and welcome to another episode of Two Guys and a Chainsaw. I'm Todd. And I'm Craig. Well, Craig, we come again once, as we do often on our podcast, for a tribute episode where we find an actor who has recently passed or a, a filmmaker, somebody in the film industry, and run out and see if they've done a horror movie and uh, see if we can pay tribute to them on our tiny little podcast, which they'll never hear. It just hit me, yeah. right? Like, we do tribute episodes. We should start doing tribute episodes to people who haven't died yet. We probably should. That'd be good. I know. These episodes, I, I, I like doing them, but they're they're bittersweet because it's, you know, it's sad when you lose somebody, especially somebody who you admire for one reason or another. Um, but at the same time, it's also nice to have the opportunity to to talk about them and, and, and show our respect and admiration. So... Yeah, actually, it's it's been a while, but um, we recently lost James Caan, who is a really prolific actor, probably best known for The Godfather. He had done some stuff before that, but that was kind of his big breakout role, and uh, I believe he was nominated for a Golden Globe or something. But he had done uh, some things before that. Uh, other people, our, our our dad's generation, probably knew him well from the movie Brian Song, uh, where he played real-life football player Brian Piccolo, who tragically died of cancer at a very young age. I'm not big into sports movies, but I've seen that one, and it's really good. And he was acclaimed for that role also. Our generation and, and the generations who have come after us probably know Khan as... Um, um, Buddy's real dad in Elf. Yeah. <laughs> His uh, resume is extensive. He's done tons and tons of movies um, from the 70s on. From the 60s on, man. Yeah. It's kind of nuts. Yeah. When you look at his resume, it's just insane. And he's just, he, again, he was always that guy. He's, oh, there he is. You know, it's not like he was everywhere. But uh, when he popped up. Yeah, yeah. He's distinctive. He's he's handsome. He's rugged. He's very much kind of a man's man. Mm-hmm. Uh, got a got a distinctive look, a distinctive voice. Uh, kind of a tough guy. I don't know. I, I just I always liked him and everything that he was in. Recently, in his in his personal life, he was an athlete as a young man, and he wanted to play football in college, but he couldn't make the team. Um, and so instead, he turned to theater and found that he really uh, enjoyed acting and and was quite good at it, and and was uh, you know well received by directors and audiences alike. And so that's kind of what he stuck with. Started out in uh, theater, worked on Broadway for a little bit before getting into some small TV roles, then film roles. He preferred to stay away from TV. He, he preferred to work in film, but he did work in TV from time to time throughout his career, you know, up until um, the latter part of his career where he sometimes uh, worked opposite his son, who's also an actor, Scott Kahn. As far as more of his personal life, <laughs> something that I learned about him before he passed away uh, was that he was married for married and divorced four times yeah and because of that he had a lot of alimony and spousal support to pay so in the latter part of his life he really kind of had to accept any work that was offered to him because he had to work because he had all these financial responsibilities so in the latter part of his career if you look on his resume he did some not great stuff. Mm. Um, he he did a modernized version of Wuthering Heights for MTV, which I saw, which was 
terrible. He he had a big cameo in an awful Christmas movie that we reviewed. I think it was called Santa's Sleigh. Yes. He was just in he was in the opening scene with a bunch of other people who were just doing cameos, I'm sure, for the check. But regardless, you know, uh, of of some of those less than stellar roles that he had to take for financial reasons, he still has a, a huge oeuvre of work that is very much commendable. And my favorite of his movies is the movie that we're talking about today, and uh, that is 1990's Misery. Misery. The kind of movie that we normally don't do because it is so popular. I mean, it won Kathy... Ba- well, it was Kathy Bates' breakout role. It won her an Academy Award for Best Actress. It swept up. I remember when this movie came out. It was huge. It, it, people talked about it. It was well-loved. It's a very, very mainstream horror movie, right? Uh-huh. Uh, and so, you know, we, we don't usually talk about these, but again, when we get these tribute episodes, it often gives us a chance to do so. So, you know, Craig and I, before we even started recording this, we're talking, we're just like, you know, there's no way we can do an hour <laughs> on this no. alone. But I mean, we'll try. We'll compress it. The point is, we can't just say everything there is to say about this movie and everything behind it in an hour. So... Uh, you can go to the IMDb page and go through the very, very long trivia section there. You can get in deep with articles and, and interviews and things uh, about it later. It was a phenomenon, really, when it came out. Like, everybody saw this movie. And everybody. everybody That's it. what I remember about it. You know, the, the people in my life who were not horror fans at all. And, and I don't know, you know, this movie may be better classified as a thriller, but I definitely yeah. think that it's horror. I mean, it, it's it's genuinely frightening in in many places and and i absolutely love it you know i i remember my mom and my aunts you know adults who were not interested in horror at all everybody was watching this movie and uh i saw it probably at the time that it came out um and as i told you before we started recording i i couldn't count the number of times i've seen this movie this is a movie that you can watch over and over again it's that good the performances are just absolutely stellar and it's crazy because it's a it's it's a small movie in scope there are really only two central characters the vast majority of it takes place in one small bedroom, but it's just absolutely captivating, and it's captivating from beginning to end. It's a really, really tight hour and 45 minutes, yeah, and it just moves like it is constantly moving through the whole thing. Kathy Bates, her performance is just phenomenal. I mean, she deserved every accolade she got. She deserved a Best Actress win for this. Of course, it's a Stephen King property, so I was interested in it from the get-go. Um, yeah. And in researching for today, I found out that, that King intended this to be one of his Bachman books. He wrote under a pseudonym uh, for a while, Richard Bachman. Um, these were books that uh, were a little bit grittier than his typical fare, and this was intended to be a Bachman book, but he was found out while he was writing this book. He was exposed, and so he retired the pseudonym. He said that uh, Richard Bachman died of cancer of the pseudonym or something like that, so he <laughs> <laughs> he retired. I-, I think he brought back the pseudonym for a couple books later on, but he yeah. published this under his own name. It was a big hit. I didn't read it before I saw the movie. I only read it years and years after I had seen the movie, 
as the movie is an excellent movie, the book is an excellent book. Oh, God. It's one of my favorites of King's books. It's one of King's favorites of King's books. He says that the character of Annie Wilkes is his absolute favorite character that he's ever written just because she was so nuanced and she was constantly surprising him. In both the book and the movie, I think that part of the reason that she's so fascinating as a character is because she's not just a monster. She's a sick person. She is a, a crazy person. And both in the book and in the movie, there are times when you can find sympathy for her. And then there are other times when she's absolutely nightmarish in her cruelty and uh, her capacity for cruelty and, and to cause harm. Uh, it's just so good. I mean, I that's, that's why we're going to have such a hard time keeping this at an hour, because I could go on and on and on about this all day. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, the book holds a very special place in my heart, because this is... I think I was in middle school, maybe, when I when I picked this up from the library, and I brought it home, and it was a summer, so I had a lot of free time, and one morning, I just started reading it, and I did not stop reading it until the book was done. I read the whole thing morning to night. It was the first and maybe only time I've ever read a book cover to cover, literally. I think I got up to go to the bathroom, you know, a few times, maybe have dinner, and then I came back at it. It is so enthralling from beginning to end, so captivating. It's just a really tense story with just seriously intense scenes. Yeah, to the point where, you know, when I saw the movie, of course I was excited when the movie came out, but when a book, you know, grabs you so much like that, and then, of course, when they make a movie, you have to simplify some things, you have to Mm -hmm. leave some things out and all that. You know, it's a bit of a disappointment. Like, I felt the same way about Jurassic Park. Like, I love Jurassic Park. It's a great movie. But, you know, everybody was just gaga over it. And because I had read the book first, Mike's response was, yeah, it's great, but it was a little more muted. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. (laughs) You know? Just because, oh, God, I was like, there's so... Like, everybody who loves this movie just can't understand that there's an even better story behind this that... Read the book! Read the book! You know? That's, That's what I want to do for everybody with Misery. Like, Misery's a fantastic film, but my God, the book is just ten times more intense. Right, and and I think you know I think King had a really good uh, experience writing it. It was ve- it's a very personal novel for him. He didn't reveal at the time what his inspiration behind the book was. He kept that to himself for a long time, and I think it was not until the 2000s um, that he finally revealed in an interview and and said that he finally felt ready to reveal in an interview that this book, this story, is an an allegory for his struggle with addiction. Mm. Annie Wilkes, the character, is like the monkey on his back, his addiction um, that kept him captive um, and and kept him from the people that he loved, kept him from the work that he loved. Uh, and that was something that he struggled with for a very long time. But he eventually was able uh, to overcome his addictions as much as anybody can. I think um, when you're an addict, you're always an addict. It's just about, you know, being able to control it. But mm. he, ha- he has said outright that uh, that is what the book was inspired by. And there's actually a subplot in the book. To, to call it a subplot is almost misleading. You know, it's it's a big 
component of the book that Paul uh, Sheldon, the author, main character of the novel, is a former addict who has only recently overcome his addictions. And when he's in this accident, which we'll talk about here really soon, uh, and is being treated for his injuries, uh, he's given narcotic pain medications, which he becomes addicted to again and, and struggles with that throughout the course of the book that's removed from the film entirely which is kind of unfortunate because i think that it was a big important part of the book yeah however the movie plays fine without it too it does um and i think that that's also something that's you know so nuanced that it might be difficult to portray well in film not impossible but again like you said with any film adaptation you got to I don't want to say trim the fat but you got to trim somewhere and and well, yeah this got cut down a little bit you have to make choices and and I mean you know a lot of different choices and this movie's in good hands I mean William Goldman wrote the screenplay yeah uh, William Goldman is just a an icon I don't know the John Williams of you know screenwriting you know <laughs> John Williams is to scoring William Goldman has just written so many big successful well-respected films uh, and has turned out to be a fantastic screenwriter. But And Rob Reiner, the director, um, this wasn't their first collaboration, but uh, Rob Reiner, you know him from Spinal Tap, Stand By Me, which is based on a Stephen King uh, uh, story, The Body. Uh, so he was he did a Stephen King, another Stephen King novel, you know, a few, a few years before this, then went on to do The Princess Bride, uh-huh. which is just, oh my God, it's one of my all-time favorite movies. And the book, which is written by William Goldman, is even better than the movie. It was written, I believe, after the movie. Uh, we don't need to talk about The Princess Bride. But anyway, Rob Reiner, Princess Bride, Harry Met Sally, Misery. After this was A Few Good Men. I mean, he was just one hit after another. And this is just one in a long string of hits that he had starting from the mid-'80s up to the 90s. Um, really impressive cast and crew. Yeah, and Rob <laughs> Reiner is, you know, a great director. He's also... A, a, He's a funny actor, and, and he has a lot of acting credits to his name, too. But this book was so personal to King that he was reluctant to sell the rights to the film. He just kind of didn't believe that Hollywood would be faithful to the novel. Um, he, he still had a bad taste in his mouth from Kubrick's The Shining, which he was not a fan of. But he had been really impressed with Rob Reiner's adaptation of his short story, The Body, um, which which became Stand By Me, which is another one of my all-time favorite movies. Um, and King had been so impressed with that that he sold the rights, but with the provision that Reiner either direct or produce it. And Rob Reiner had had a really positive uh, experience with Stand By Me too, and he loved this book because he identified with the main character. The main character, Paul Sheldon, played by James Caan, in the movie is a a famous novelist um but he's famous for these really pulpy like romance type novels a a whole Mm. series of them i'm i'm thinking like uh vc andrews or uh who's the other one steel danielle steel danielle steel my mom read everything danielle steel ever wrote right that type of thing and whatever you know people enjoy those books they do really well and and um in in the context of the movie and the book he has done very well but paul um wants to break away from that despite the fact that he's had a lot of success with it he doesn't feel like it's 
what he really wants to do. He doesn't feel like it's a real reflection of him or his talent. So he wants to break away from it and, and prove that he can do something else. And Reiner related to that. He was known really for light hearted comedies, romantic comedies. Um, and he was asked, you know, why would you break away from that formula that you're so successful in and do tackle something this dark? And he said, because he wanted to, prove that he could do it he he related to the character in that way that he wanted to break away and show that he was more than just one thing um and i think that's a cool connection also the script god i swear that every a-list actor of the 80s and 90s was offered the lead role in this movie it's warren Beatty, dustin hoffman um bruce willis harrison ford Everybody, every, every A-list, yeah, every A-list <laughs> male star was offered this role. Um, and all of them, except Warren Beatty, turned it down outright. And the speculation is that they saw the role as emasculating because the main male character um, kind of ends up falling victim to this woman to some extent at least, is figuratively and lib- literally hobbled by this woman. And, and they didn't want to do that. Eventually, James Kahn was... Uh, Warren Beatty was the only one. He was in talks to do it for a long time. Eventually, he just held out for so long that they felt like they had to move on. It was offered to James Kahn, and um, after the movie was filmed, both Rob Reiner and the guy who wrote the screenplay said that they couldn't imagine anybody else having done the role justice uh, the way that Kahn did. And I I agree, maybe only because to me the movie is so iconic and the performances are so iconic. I can't really imagine uh, anybody else in the role. Bruce Willis was another uh, actor who was offered the role and turned it down. He did end up playing the role on Broadway in 2015 uh, opposite Laurie Metcalf, who is a brilliant actress. I, I would give an exorbitant amount of money to be able to see a film of that production but as far as i know it's not available <laughs> to his credit james Kahn took the role for that precise reason he said he thought it would be interesting to play a reactionary you know a character who's primarily reactionary you know for once when normally he was playing these sort of tough guy roles um tough assertive people i mean one person's trash is another person's treasure right yeah so, yeah i think that people knew that this movie was going to do well. Kathy Bates' role, Annie Wilkes, a lot of people were in consideration for that too. Roseanne Barr was in consideration, Rosie O'Donnell, Bette Midler turned it down, which she later said that she regretted and felt really stupid about. Angelica Houston was interested. Uh, Mary Tyler Moore really, really wanted it. (laughs) Can you imagine? Man. No. <laughs> yeah, th- there were other people that you wouldn't expect, but um, Reiner thought that it would be better to cast an unknown because he didn't want people to come in with preconceived notions about the character and the uh, the screenwriter. I- I'm not sure how he was familiar with Kathy Bates, but I'm pretty sure it was William Goldman, the screenwriter, who recommended her. Um, and she came in and she just absolutely slayed it. She uh, and Khan clashed on set because 
her experience up to this point had been almost exclusively theater. Now, he had some theater background, too, but they had different approaches to acting. Um, she wanted to rehearse extensively, and he wanted to rehearse as little as possible. He wanted it to be in the moment, you know, natural, um, whereas she wanted to rehearse. And uh, they clashed over it. And she was very frustrated, and she actually went to Rob Reiner and to voice her frustration. And he told her, look, we'll try to come to some sort of compromise, but take that frustration and use it. Use it in your performance. Use it in your character. And I, I think that she did. And again, like I said, her her performance just blows me away. James Kahn's performance is a little bit more subtle, but I think that he does an amazing job because it is when you've got when you're playing against somebody who is playing totally crazy totally irrational totally unpredictable how do you respond to that Uh, and i i think that you have to be very cautious and very calculated um and he does that very well he's very calm and well he he puts out an aura of calmness in situations where i would be freaking out um, yeah, he he's able to control himself very well, and I think the two of them together just you know it was it's lightning in a bottle. He comes across as a very measured guy, like a smart man, right? Like oh, a yeah. person who, well, you know, and honestly, I, I I this may be wrong, but I feel like if you're if you're a novelist, you know, if you're a writer, you're a student of people, you know, you're sure. a student of life and of character, and and you're probably maybe more observant, more actively observant of the people around you and kind of what makes them tick. Probably a pretty excellent psychologist inside, you know, to be able to write characters and that are successful and believable. And so it almost feels like, you know, he, as much as he's not in control of his situation, because he can't be, because he's just been in a car accident and uh, he's stuck in bed and he physically can't really move or do much, he seems to understand full wholeheartedly over time who she is or at least what he does and doesn't understand about her and how to measure his his reaction you know Mm -hmm. in order to keep himself safe and it's just amazing how a guy sitting in bed with very little in the way of gesture and physicality just with looks and expressions and stuff on his face really gets this across like you can see what's going through his head you know (laughs) when he's reacting to her and when when she's saying it and it's 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 very very clear and it's very believable and it also feels very smart. So this is not a movie where, like a lot of horror movies, you feel like these characters are doing really stupid things. Mm-mm. They're in a bad situation. They're making it worse by making poor choices. This is like a guy who seems to be making all the right choices, and that's what makes it even more terrifying. Right? Is that still <laughs> when you make all the right choices, it doesn't automatically get you out of danger. And so, you know, uh, that's that's what's so great about the movie, I think, and and the story in general is just this guy is not an idiot. He's only in over his head because he is completely uh, at the mercy of this crazy woman in many many ways 
And can he outsmart her, you know, to the extent that you can outsmart a crazy, obsessive person? Mm-hmm. There's a big X factor there. There's a level of, of, of unpredictability when you're dealing with that, that even though logically you think you do this, it should garner this response. You're dealing with a person who's not operating necessarily in the world of logic most of the time. Right. And so, you know, it stabs in the dark. It's, a, oh, this got this reaction. Well, that, that teaches me something. You know, you right. just learn and learn and learn and, and try different things. Yeah, and you're you're dealing with somebody who is completely unpredictable. You know, I I read somewhere some uh, psychologist was asked about was asked to analyze the character, and they said that really she is just a representative of a whole hodgepodge of mental illnesses, including bipolar, probably some schizophrenic tendencies, um, depressive states, all, you know, all kinds of different things. But she is uh, just completely unpredictable. And in one moment, she can be just genuinely gentle and, and, and kind. And the next minute, just out of her mind, angry. And, and Kathy Bates plays that so well. And like Khan, um, you can see things in her face. You can see changes. You know, they're so subtle, but you can also see it happening um, behind mm. her eyes and just the, just the slightest alterations in her facial expressions. Um, it's just masterful, her uh, performance. And a lot of that also comes with the style that it's shot in. Rob Reiner looked to Hitchcock um, as his inspiration for shooting Mm. this movie, for shooting a a thriller. And I can see it so much in the style of shooting. There are lots of extreme close-ups on things, lots of of extreme facial close-ups. He even does a really cool thing how he shoots Annie when she's calm and in control of herself. She's shot straight on. When she starts to kind of veer into crazy territory, the camera angle changes so that it's looking up at her. So it's a little bit askew and off and makes you a little bit uncomfortable and also makes her more intimidating because it's almost as though you're looking up at her as he would be or as a child would have to look up at an adult which puts you in a really vulnerable position and just makes it that much more uncomfortable it's just so well done all around the plot is pretty simple and there are some things that i want to point out because there are so many quotable uh, moments but the plot really is fairly simple it opens with main character Paul Sheldon, played by James Caan, finishing a novel on a typewriter in a remote ski lodge. Um, when he's finished, he has a glass of expensive champagne and a cigarette, which we later find out is his ritual. And then he leaves. And he has been staying in this mountain resort. Um, it's in, in or near the town of Sidewinder, which is where the Overlook Hotel is located in um, the shining but he's in the in the mountains and it's snowy when he leaves but then as he's driving down the mountain the snow gets really really heavy and he ends up crashing and his car rolls multiple times um, down the mountain 
pretty far, I would say at least 100 yards off the road. So that's the situation that he's in. After that, we get a flashback where we see him talking to his agent, played by legendary screen actress Lauren Bacall. Wow. And this and this is where he explains why he wants to get out of the misery business. Misery is the name of his series of books centered around this character, Misery Chastain. Um, it's set in the deep south, I, I think like the antebellum south, um, and he explains why he wants to get out of it. Misery Chastain put braces on your daughter's teeth and is putting her through college. Bought you two houses and floor seats to the Knicks. And what thanks does she get? You go and kill her. I never meant for it to become my life. And if I hadn't gotten rid of her now, I'd have ended up writing her forever. Now I'm leaving for Colorado to try to finish the new book. If I can make this work, I might just have something I want on my tombstone. And the agent says, and what do you, how do you thank her? You kill her off. Um, this is the newest edition that's being published now, but is not on the shelves yet. And he says, and so he's been in the mountains working on this kind of passion project. But the next thing we see is somebody prying him out of the car. If you hadn't seen the movie and you knew nothing about it, you would assume this was a man because they, pr- he's pried out of the car. He's given CPR and then. This person throws him over their shoulder and carries him, presumably, at least up the hill to a car. Um, But it turns out, when he wakes up, it's this woman, played by Kathy Bates, named Annie Wilkes. And the first thing he hears is, I'm your number one fan. There's nothing to worry about. You're going to be just fine. I'll take, I'll take good care of you. I'm your I'm number one fan. And even that alone, that I'm your number one fan, that that line is iconic at this point. And by the way, Lauren Bacall, huh? It was, yeah. It's so amazing. She even has that mid-Atlantic accent that was so popular, you know, back in the 40s, even now in 1990. Just, just this unbelievable, like... I just couldn't believe she was in this movie. I mean, she's got a very small role, but I was oh, yeah. just shocked that Lauren Bacall was still alive and looking good by 19... I don't know, you know, she's still... Is she still alive today? I, guess maybe I have no is. idea. I have no idea. But, I mean, she... Yeah, I mean, she's statuesque. I mean, and... and it's crazy uh, that she's... Comma- just gorgeous and, and a really yeah. commanding presence, yeah. Well, anyway, he's in bed, and uh, she, he has, his legs have been completely shattered, and they look disgusting. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, that was done has... with the the effects. They they were done with gelatin. Um, I mean, they're they're just uh, completely swollen and black and blue and bloody and and disgusting. And there was a hole. I think the whole lower part of his leg was kind of a big sleeve. Mm. that he wore like up to his knee but it it looks it looks awful but yeah. it looks great <laughs> very but it, real but it yeah, looks, yeah it looks very real and absolutely miserable like you can't imagine the pain um and he plays that well too he is in excruciating yeah. excruciating pain it's really pretty good and and greg nicotero was on the design team for the special effect well he was on the special effects team or makeup effects team, I should say. And Greg Nicotero, again, we've talked about him several times in here. He's a, he's a horror movie special effects guy, um, mainly responsible for the Walking Dead stuff now. 
But uh, yeah, anyway, so yeah, she has reset his legs, and she's a nurse, right? So yeah. she is not just a nurse, but she's a very capable woman. Like, she's yeah. like living on a farm. She has a pet pig we are later introduced to that she calls Misery after her f- absolute favorite character. We learn that, you know, she's just an, a devotee to his novels, and she speaks about his novels in glowing terms. Like, yeah, she's obsessed. She saved my life. And, and then here comes an interesting point. We learn that she knows who he is and that she's his number one fan, and she notices that he has another manuscript, and she asks permission from him to read his unpublished manuscript. And I thought that was interesting. You know, this is a... He could have said no, and maybe things would have gone in a different direction, you know? Uh, Mm. Because she probably wouldn't have. You know, she didn't seem like the kind of person who would... uh, She does some pretty evil things, but she doesn't seem like the kind of person who, even though he said no, would try to sneak it anyway. I don't think she would try to sneak it, but I think she would have gotten her hands on it. I mean... Probably in some way, shape, or form, yeah. Yeah, she gets what she wants. You know, she seems very nice and gentle. Everything's a little fishy from the beginning. She tells him that the roads are out and the phone is down but she says she'll take care of him and get him out of there as soon as the roads are cleared but she also admits he's like how did you find me and she says well i guess you could say i was following you and he's like what she's like well i i know all about you because i'm such a fan so i know that you write up there so um i i kind of been just you know driving up there at night and watching the light in your window and and you know thinking about what you were writing about or whatever so like that's creepy yeah, she does constantly surprise you through this movie with the things that you learn about her. That's part of what's kind of enjoyment. Yeah, I agree, a hundred percent. But it's 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 done in such a way that it's not slow because the movie's fast. Um, in fact, like I said, Alan was sitting right behind me, and um, he said, "Man, it doesn't take very long." for her crazy to start showing does it and i said no and i looked at the time and it was like exactly at the half hour mark because he he does say that she can read the manuscript and very soon after that she's feeding him lunch and you can tell that something's troubling her just a little bit and she starts to kind of offer a criticism says no no who am i to criticize and he's like no you know i really want to know and she criticizes the swearing in the manuscript. It has no nobility. These are slum kids. I was a slum kid. Everybody talks like that. They do not? What do you think I say when I go to the feed store in town? Oh, now, Wally, give me a bag of that effing pig feed and 10 pounds that bitchly cow corn. And in the bank, do I tell Mrs. Bollinger, oh, here's one big bastard of a check. Give me some of your Christing money. There, look there. See what you made me do. Oh, Paul, I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. Oh, so... Sometimes I get so worked up. Can you ever forgive me? It's silly, <laughs> but it's manic. Um, like, she really f- freaks out. Mm-hmm. Again, the camera angle changes to show her strangeness, cleans mm-hmm. him up, and walks away and says, I love you, Paul. Uh, your, your mind, your creativity, that's all I meant. And I feel like it's at this point that you can see in his face that he's like, shit. <laughs> I might be in a little bit of trouble here. Yeah. And he definitely is, and it only gets crazier from there. 
Well, and at the same time, we've got this parallel thing going on where um, the agent uh, has reported that Paul was uh, missing uh, to the local sheriff slash police chief slash deputy slash whatever. Yeah, the uh, only law enforcement in this podunk town. The only law enforcement, the only really authority at all in this podunk town, which he kind of makes light of in, in a funny way, I think, actually, when he's on the phone with her. And this is just like this sweet old man with his wife. I love them. <laughs> who's his assistant. Yeah, they were just just sweet. I don't remember them in the book. I'm sure they were in the book. I don't he remember is, them in the book. Um, Buster, he's the sheriff guy. He's played by Richard Farnsworth, who is an old man who you would recognize. He's been in stuff. Um, he started mm-hmm. his career as a stuntman, uh, like in Westerns and stuff, um, but eventually, you know, started getting some character work. And his wife, Virginia, is played by Frances Sternhagen, who, again, mm-hmm. is entirely recognizable. She's been in a million things. She was also in the adaptation of Stephen King's The Mist, um, and, and her name's Virginia. He is in the book... Uh, she is not. She's invented for the movie. His role in the book is smaller, and they wanted to bump it up. They wanted to make him a little bit um, more industrious and and smart in the movie. And so you're right. There's there's just constantly this side story of them kind of looking into things, doing some investigation. At some point, he starts reading Paul Sheldon's novels to see if he can get any clues there. But these these old folks, this old couple, they're fucking adorable. Yeah, <laughs> and and hilarious together. It is an interesting thing, right? I guess maybe Goldman felt like you know you needed to balance, you know, provide a little balance here, like lest we start taking things too seriously, yeah. lest the terror become too bad. Like now we're going to switch you over to this cute little old couple who have some byplay and you know, but still advance the story along. Well, in a way, I guess it's not like they ever figure things out in the nick of time (laughs) but they are providing this like well what's happening like this famous novelist has disappeared who's doing anything about it oh it's this guy who's got nothing else to do but also you know doesn't have a modern computer system you know it's quaint and it's cute and it also makes you realize like maybe they're never going to find him because it's not like the FBI is pulling out all the stops to find this dude. You know, it's it's no. up to this sweet old couple sort of doing their best, but also it's not their biggest priority. Um, it's almost becomes for him just like a minor obsession in a way, right? Like just a right. curiosity. Maybe I can maybe I can find him. Maybe things just aren't quite right. He almost finds the car, but he doesn't because it's you know buried under snow. Later, they do find the car after the snow melts, you know, and a lot of stuff has happened. He's reading the novels, trying to get clues, which is a cute idea, but rather silly. Yeah. But then he, he does write down a quote from one of the novels, which later on um, he... he uh, Makes a connection. Yeah, makes a connection, and that helps him uh, kind of go, go out to, to her place. But uh, And so there's that investigative element. <laughs> right, which I think is a nice break from the tension, because everything that's going on in um, Annie's house is is pretty tense uh, most of the time. So this provides a little bit of break from the tension. But you're right, it does also establish that if, if not for this older guy, gentleman who's investigating, they might not find him. Because when they do finally locate... Well, they, they locate the car by helicopter. Rob Reiner cameos as the helicopter 
pilot. I think state troopers kind of take over the investigation and you see them at a like doing a press conference at the site and they say it's it's presumed now that he's dead. Um, we will, we may find him, you know, when all of the snow thaws, that is, unless the animals have already gotten to him. So the big, (laughs) so the big authorities have, have given up, you know, they, he's presumed dead case closed. It's only because kind of, I I thought this bit was a little hilarious. Maybe unintentionally so, but I like, I couldn't imagine an actual police person actually Saying saying that kind of thing to the press. I don't know. (laughs) But the big trouble for Paul comes when Annie goes into town and comes back and is super excited to show him that she has picked up the the newest uh, installment of the Misery saga, and it's called Misery's Child. Um, Now, when he asks, well, if you went into town, that must mean the roads are clear. And she kind of brushes it off and says, well, the main road to town is clear, but all, you know, most of the other roads to surrounding areas are still not clear. And and the phones in town work, but mine here still is out. She said, but don't worry, I called your agent and I told your agent to call your daughter. I mean, she's being really shady. She's really kind of brushing it off. Mm hmm. And it's obvious. Yeah, it's obvious. It is, I think, to us and to him. Mm -hmm. But she's thrilled about this book. I'm on page 300 now, Paul. And it's better than perfect. It's divine. What's the ceiling that Dago painted? The Sistine Chapel. Yeah, that and Misery's Child. Those are the only two divine things ever in this world. And she introduces him to Misery the Pig, and she's acting a little nutty, but... Not necessarily in a threatening way yet. But then she talks about how she had a really hard time when her husband left, and she thought that she might go crazy. And that's when she first discovered misery. Misery really saved her life. And she says to him that she's almost finished with the book. We, you know, she's only got a couple of chapters left. And for me... For the audience, such a sense of dread is building because we already know that he kills Misery off in this book. And Mm -hmm. we know that she is just pages away from finding that out. And then in the middle of the night, he wakes up and she's standing at the foot of his bed. And again, you know, the the performance uh, is, is just... She's a nut. She says... You dirty bird. How could you? She can't be dead. Misery Chastain cannot be dead. Annie, in 1871, women often died in childbirth. But her spirit is the important thing, and Misery's spirit is still alive. I don't want her spirit! I want her! And you murdered her! No, I didn't. No one. She she died. She just slipped away. Slipped away? Slipped away? She didn't just slip away. You did it. 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 You murdered my misery. Annie. Annie. 
and and she absolutely freaks out and shakes the bed. When I say shakes the bed, she takes the footboard and like pulls it up off the ground and slams it repeatedly and is screaming at him uh, and the camera is an extreme close up on her face and she smashes a plant off of a plant stand picks up the plant stand acts like she's going to hit him with it but instead smashes it against the wall and then says to him I don't think I'd better be around you for a while and then she looks at him and says don't even think about anybody coming for you I didn't call anybody. Nobody knows you're here. And you better hope that nothing happens to me. Because if I die, you die. And then she leaves. <laughs> direct <sighs> threat. Finally, we get a direct threat. Uh-huh. <laughs> and she oh, drives man. away. And I remember this next scene, like, from the book. The most, yeah. you know, as, as being incredibly intense. And it's, I don't think it's the first time in the book that he tries to get out, or at least explore the house, but it's it's definitely the first time in the movie that he realizes, oh shit, I need to take some agency here and do something, because this woman is loony. So, when she drives away, he takes that opportunity to pull himself out of bed. And, I mean, it's very convincing, you know, the poor guy's still, um, his legs are useless and still trying to mend themselves, but, you know, utterly gross and in splints, and he falls out of bed, and he grabs a, a hairpin that he had found, or just picked up just a little bit earlier. The first time he can't get out, um, yeah. because he doesn't know the door is locked, um, so he ends up on... Oh, you're right, you're right, He, he makes his way to the door, but, but that's as far as he can get, um... And, and then it cuts, I guess, to the next morning, and she finds him on the floor, and she's calm again. Um, and she gets him back into bed. She's not as gentle as she had been before. I think she calls him a big crybaby or something like that, but she's calm. And she says to him, sometimes my thinking is a little muddy. I accept that. That's why I couldn't remember all of the things they were asking me about on the witness stand in Denver. Uh, what? <laughs> Excuse me? You want to back that up a little bit? Oh, but she doesn't expand upon that. Now, what she says is, I asked God about you. And God told me that I have to help you get back on the right track. And the first step in doing that is she makes him burn his manuscript. And he tries to manipulate her. You want me to burn my book? I know this may be difficult for you, but it's for the best. It's, it's really not difficult at all. My agent made dozens of copies. There's going to be an auction in New York. Every publishing house in New York is reading it now. So if you want me to burn my book, fine. You're not really ridding the world of anything. Then light the match, Paul. Yeah, uh -huh. and she goes off on this whole thing about how um, when you wrote your first book, you didn't make any copies because you didn't think people would take it seriously. And so ever since then, uh, you've been superstitious and you never make any copies. You only have the one copy. She pulls a charcoal barbecue grill into the room. <laughs> this is such a tense scene. She puts his manuscript on the grill douses it in lighter fluid but he refuses to light the match to strike the match and so she very calmly just starts walking around his bed talking to him casually splashing the lighter fluid onto him onto yeah. the covers that he is covered with 
it's a, it's a, it's a clear i mean she remains calm but it's an obvious threat like if you don't burn this i'm gonna burn you yeah and so he does he he sets it on fire and it gets out of control and her reactions are hilarious oh goodness oh goodness gracious me mm. uh, it's, it's almost nutty. like a little tom and jerry act at that point where she's trying to put it out of the curtains and as the fire embers are flying around she's being kind of silly like a kid, you know. Goodness I, gracious, good. Yeah, I thought that it was a miracle that none of those sparks landed on the bed. Like right? that's that's yeah. almost unbelievable. It is actually, but but the, the you know it's just she just bounces, but from one extreme to the next sometimes, and it's convincing though. You know, it could. It is even though it is a little campy, and it's supposed to be a little campy. It it's very convincing. Like I know, look, I mean. I'm not going to say I know anybody just like this, right? But I know these personality flaws, if you will, or personality traits in people. My, one of my grandmothers, who is not with us anymore, but it would get very disturbing sometimes when suddenly, like, she would actually just flip out of nowhere. Something that somebody said or something, like, set her off, and she would flip so extremely and so, like, insanely that it was scary, I mean, even though she's not actually threatening. My grandmother never threatens anybody. You know what I mean? But you, she would just get highly emotional all of a sudden out of nowhere. And this happened a couple times, and it's a spooky thing to watch. And you would never believe that this would happen in real life if you hadn't witnessed it yourself, you know? <laughs> mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I completely believe this character, even when she's bouncing from one extreme to the next, because uh, pe- some people are like this. They really are. But she's dangerous. You know, oh gosh, um, yeah, she's incredibly and, dangerous. I mean, at this point, he does. We we see that he starts hiding his pills. He's he's not uh, taking his pills. He's hiding them in his mattress. But she sets up a writing desk for him there in the room and tells him that she wants him to write a new misery book called Misery's Return. And in this scene, she's almost giddy. That she wants to help him, like she genuinely thinks that she's helping him, mm. um, and and she's going out of her way. She's bought him a typewriter, um, and she got it. She got a really good deal on it because it drops the ends, and she bought him the most expensive paper uh, she could find. And it's such a good performance because in these moments, her kindness seems genuine, and I think that it is Mm -hmm. but i think that's how unbalanced she is um in in these moments she genuinely is trying to please him this is when he notices that a bobby pin is on the ground and so to get her out of the house he complains about the paper that she bought him and says well it'll smudge and she says well it's the most expensive they had there's no way that it'll smudge and so he shows her that it does and again it's just a great change in her affect where she goes from being giddy to being angry at him for complaining and she throws a tantrum asking him what else can she get him you know uh maybe a little uh, tape recorder or i don't know all and she screams at him and tells him that he needs to start being a little bit more grateful and she slams the ream of paper down on his shattered legs <laughs> she's incredibly dangerous um and this is the scene that you were talking about where he does because he gets the bobby pin yeah. and uh in the book he talks about how he had written about 
people picking locks with bobby pins and he had done research on it so that it would be authentic in his book but he had never actually done it and so he he didn't know if he could but he it both in the book and the movie he does and he gets out and and this scene is and it's still every time i see it it has me on the edge of my seat and my heart racing i know how it turns out but it's just so tense. It's crazy. Yeah, it's 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 nuts. I mean, he rolls his way out. He he's he's kind of exploring the house, but he knows he has limited time. He doesn't know how long it's going to take her to get back. He goes to the phone, and then and not only is the phone not plugged in, but the guts are out of it. <laughs> like he picks up the phone, tries to make a call, and then's like, "Wait a second, and picks the whole thing up off the table, looks at, it, and he's like, "Crazy bitch," or something like that. <laughs> And anyway, uh, as he's pushing his way around, and I remember this is a big thing in the book, right? He knocks a penguin off a table. She has this, like, little table full of tiny little tchotchkes, and uh, one of them is a penguin. And he knocks it off, and he catches it before it hits the ground and breaks. But when he puts it back down, it's facing the wrong way. Mm -hmm. It's not facing the way. So, like, we know, and later on she reveals that she knows he got out because of this. Anyway, it's a it's a crazy tense scene because eventually, you know, he co- she's coming back up the road and he's not back in the room yet. And he's got to get back in there. He's got to close the door. He's got to relock the door with the bobby pin. Just in time does he get back behind his typewriter when she bursts in. But she's like, oh, my God, you're sweating. <laughs> mm-hmm. And you know what? This is a detail that a lot of movies just entirely miss, right? Yeah. How many times have you seen this in a film where some character has to do something really, really fast before someone gets in the room, and then as soon as they pop in the room, that character's right back where they need to be, mm-hmm. and they're just like super calm and looking up, right? And I thought, oh, yeah, of course, he would be panting and sweating. And still, he's smart enough to immediately reply, my heart, my pills, you know, I need my pills, I'm in pain. Uh, like, while she was gone, suddenly things got more painful for him. Well, no, it makes sweat. perfect sense. Right before she left, right before he left, she slammed the that ream of paper down on his leg. Exactly. He probably would be in excruciating pain. Yeah, he's a smart mm-hmm. guy. And, it, you know, and so he seemingly gets away with it at the time. But this is a big thing, like you said earlier, that was a big part of the book that was missing from the movie. Is she basically has him addicted to these pills. And I, as I remembered, it seems kind of intentional. And so she actually, I believe in the book, she, she will withhold pills from him sometimes, right? In uh-huh, order to yeah. kind of punish him. And so sometimes when he sneaks out, he's... He's also trying to get pills. Yeah. You know, that's kind of like uh, the secondary goal is to get some pills and hide them so that he can actually, like, you know. Well, and he did. In this scene, he did. He stole some pills. But in the movie, his purpose for stealing the pills is because he's been collecting them and he's going to try to drug her. I, I think he invites her to dinner or something and she makes yep. dinner and like it's like a romantic dinner. And he tries to drug her. He get he actually gets the the powder from the pills. He gets it into her wine glass. But then, ironically... She spills it. Do you think she did that on purpose? Do you think she suspected something? I don't know. I honestly don't think so, but it's definitely possible. It's, you know, the way she plays it in the movie, I felt like they were leaving that open to interpretation. Uh Uh-huh. I think so, too. So anyway, at this point, you know, he doesn't have much choice. So he tries to write, but Annie's not satisfied with his work because she claims that he's cheating. Um, And there's an amazing monologue this is the monologue that I always think of 
where she talks about how when she was a kid, she really liked, um, she calls them chapter plays, um, or the serials that they would play, you know, before matinees at, uh, the movie theater, these action adventure things. But she would get really, really mad when they would cheat because, you know, they would always end on a cliffhanger. But then when you would come back the next week, the cliffhanger would have been changed. So like a character who was in peril, uh, the next week they would show that at the last second they had gotten out of peril or whatever. And it really pissed her off because she thought that that was cheating. And it's a great monologue. She just delivers it. It's so manic and she gets so worked up. Mm-hmm. But at the end of it, she tells him, misery was buried in the ground at the end, Paul, so you'll have to start there. Um, so he tries again. And she's, she's absolutely thrilled. That's when they have the dinner, I think. And then, then he starts writing feverishly and, and he's, he's pounding it out. Like he's really getting it done. Buster is still doing research. He finds articles in archives, like, you know, library research that show that, uh, Annie had been a nurse at a hospital where elderly people and infants had died mysteriously and she had been charged and he finds the quote from the book that had stuck out to him she had used that as part of her defense it was something about there is a justice higher than that of man i will be judged by him or something like that and she had quoted that directly which kind of turns him on to her it's a nice little coincidence (laughs) yeah right it is very coincidental then you know she has like this depressive episode there's a storm and she has this weird depressive episode where she talks to him and she's clearly in a bad way she says that she knows that their time together is coming to an end that the book is almost done and his legs are getting better and she knows he'll want to leave he says, why would I want to leave? I like it here. And she says, well, that's really nice of you to say, but I don't know if I entirely believe it, which I just think is such a great line. <laughs> and then she pulls a gun out of her her robe and just looks at him and says, she has this. She's like, I have this gun. Sometimes I think about using it. <laughs> and then she goes, I better go. I may put bullets in it. Like, <sighs> I'm starting to wonder as the audience, how is he going to get out of this? It's not, she's not going to let him go. You know, there, there's no way she's going to let him go. Mm-hmm. It, isn't this when she kind of more or less sort of tells him that she loves him, like, more than just his books? Yeah, and, and I, she says something like, I know you can't love me or, or something like that. Yeah. He gets out again, and he gets a knife, but she, in, in the middle of the night, um, sedates him with an injection, and then he wakes up and he's tied to the bed. Hmm. And this is m- maybe the most notorious scene. This is what people were talking about and what yeah. people still talk about to this day. She tells him that she knows he's been getting out. She She's known for a while. She knew because of the penguin. Why did she choose now to reveal it? Presumably because she noticed that the knife was missing, I guess. Mm. But she tells him that she can't have him getting out and moving around. And she says, and I know you probably saw my scrapbook, which he did, which had, you know, all of the stuff about her being accused of these murders and stuff. And then she says, I can't have you getting out anymore. And she said, the way that they stopped um, thieves in the diamond mines back in the day was they needed them to still work, but they couldn't have them you know, running Running away away. with their stuff. 
um, so they would hobble them. And uh, she puts a big piece of wood between his ankles and uses a sledgehammer to break both of his ankles. In the book, she cuts off his left foot. Yeah. And the screenwriter wanted to write this screenplay because of that scene. And he wrote it the way that it was done in the book. Rob Reiner thought it was too much. He thought it was too gory too violent and so they went with the hobbling instead and the screenwriter was disappointed until he saw the film and then he said you were right yeah it's it's just as effective reiner seemed to think that that would sort of destroy what little sympathy you might have with her Mm -hmm. i don't know i mean that's also pretty bad like i would have a similar reaction i suppose that if she chopped off his foot i can't imagine him being all that different but it, it it is in a way almost worse to be honest. Oh, it's excruciating to watch. And you actually get to see his foot, the first foot, you know, completely bend. I mean, Uh it almost looks like she's practically chopped it off. And, you know, here's the irony in here. I mean, this is how you know this woman is nuts. Like, she mended his legs before. (laughs) Yeah, right. But she's perfectly willing to break them again, you know. Absolutely. If it serves her needs. And so, you know... it's it's a horrible, horrible scene. But yeah, you're right. Everybody talks about it. James Kahn attended a screening with Rob Reiner, and they sat next to each other. And when the hobbling happened, James Kahn turned to Rob Reiner and said, You are a sick f***. <laughs> it is it is brutal and at this point uh he, he just shows open disdain towards her which is is kind of funny mm. but but buster is on to her he, he goes to the general store and he asks about her and um the general store guy gives uh him information that she has bought a typewriter and paper and uh, so he knows something's up so he heads up there and when Annie hears him coming, she bursts into Paul's room, injects him again, and then dumps him down the cellar s- stairs. And there's a scene where uh, she lets Buster in, and she's being nice to him, and she says that she's Paul Sheldon's biggest fan, and she demonstrates that by telling everything she knows about him. But she tells him, and it makes me wonder if this has been her plan for a while. She mm. tells Buster that God told her to be Paul's replacement, that um, because she's his biggest fan, she should go on telling Misery's stories as though she were Paul Sheldon. And I wonder if at this point that is her plan. Mm -hmm. She's going to get him to write this book, and then she's going to take the credit for it. I think it was in the early stages of the novel, um, King was going to have, she was going to have him write the book, and then she was going to kill him and bind the... (laughs) the book in his skin and oh, feed god. the rest and feed the rest of his body to the pig <laughs> oh my god <laughs> no way uh, yeah but no you almost want buster not to find him um mm. and it seems like that's gonna happen but at the very last second paul is able to knock over that barbecue grill down in the basement and buster hears comes back in the house opens the cellar door sees him says mr sheldon and then his chest blows out. She has shot him from behind with a shotgun, and he stumbles down the stairs. And it's sad because he's a really likable character. Yeah. Um, but it seemed kind of inevitable, and it raises the stakes even more. I mean, you knew they were high, but this woman is clearly homicidal. And at this point, she says, well, that's it. 
there'll be more people coming, you know, our, our time is over and she's going to kill them both in that moment. But he charms her and convinces her to let him finish the book. Um, he says, I'm almost done. I can finish it tonight and then we can go together. And that leads up to the climax, which is so satisfying. Yeah, I think he's at his typewriter. He finishes the last bit. She's sitting there reading it. He tells her he's done. Well, but he, he says, I'm almost done. She doesn't read. She doesn't get to read the last few pages. But he says, go ahead. Go ahead and go get the stuff, the champagne and the, the cigarette because it's his ritual. And so she goes while she's gone. Well, she comes back and she's like, did I do good? And again, it's, you know, she's being kind and trying to please him. It's almost sympathetic. And he says, you did great except for one thing. Um, this time we're going to need two champagne glasses. And, and huh, you know, that her little heart is just all aflutter and she goes to get it. While she's gone, he douses the new manuscript in um, lighter fluid, which he had gotten from the cellar because the barbecue grill was down there. And when she comes back, he taunts her. And it's just delicious. Like, he taunts her. Remember how for all those years nobody knew who Misery's real father was? Or if they'd ever be reunited? It's all right here. Does she finally marry Ian? Or will it be Winthorne? It's all right here. Why not? I learn it from you. And he lights it on fire. She tries really, really hard to put it out, which puts her right up by the desk, and he picks up that typewriter, which he had been working out with, actually, earlier. Uh He'd been lifting it, you know, when she wasn't in the room to just build up his arm strength. And he whacks her on the head with a typewriter, which I would have thought would have killed her. Oh, it surely would have, yeah. It's a classic typewriter uh and then you know he falls down they have this just they just have this fight and i remembered the book also just being extremely violent at this point where it's just a fight for your life thing and you know we know that she is a very capable and strong person Uh she carried this guy all the way to the house and has been taking care of him um and so you know it's believable as well that she's a, a formidable foe and he's still compromised you know he can't walk yeah so they're crawling and they're like do they they crawl he crawls across and he gouges her eyes um then she you know falls back and the gun kind of goes scattering but she gets the gun and and shoots him in the shoulder he gets down and tackles her oh and then he picks up the ashes from the book and is like shoves them down her throat into yeah, her he's mouth like, eat, it. <laughs> eat it you stupid bitch oh it's so great he trips her and she hits her head on the typewriter the, it, I can't even criticize it, but it's it is clearly a dummy that 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 hits the typewriter. But yeah. it's brutal nonetheless. You know, she she's seemingly dead, but he starts to crawl away. But she's not dead. You know, she she's back. She jumps on his back, but he grabs like an iron doorstop that's a a pig, and he hits her in the head with it, and then just punches her right in the face with it which would have just destroyed her face yeah it's this is how you know it's a horror movie is because we yeah. have the the final <laughs> at the end uh you think he's she's dead but she's not jump scare thing and and it's you know it's 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 a kind of ironic of course right that she gets because her pig was named misery and i uh-huh. think this pig is supposed to be like you know this ends up becoming her downfall I guess that was a door, 
yeah, doorstop. It seems oddly placed, very conveniently placed for where they are. But yeah, okay. I mean, it's kind of near the front door. Um, it's right outside his room, which is near the front door. Sure. Um, but it does kill her. But and then she just collapses on top of him. And again, she's a a big woman, <laughs> so I can only imagine it was a struggle for him. And who knows how he got out of there? I guess eventually somebody would have realized the sheriff That's was gone point. and maybe made some connections, but. Sheriff's wife maybe came by and did Maybe. Who knows? But then we get an end cap. It's 18 months later. He's at lunch with his agent. He has published a new book, you know, presumably the book that he had written before and she had made him burn. The agent says it's it's great and everybody loves it. And he's like, well, that's great that everybody loves it, but I wrote it for myself. Um, the agent says, well, you know, would you ever consider writing about what happened up in that cabin? And he's like, uh, you're asking me if I would ever consider writing about the most horrible thing that's ever happened to me? Absolutely not. And he says that even though he knows she's dead, he still sometimes feels like he's there and you see this waitress coming around pushing a dessert cart and it's her it's Kathy Bates and he's just looking at her but then as she approaches it's not her it's just another waitress who says are you Paul Sheldon and he says yeah and she says I'm your number one fan and then it just shows him smiling up at her and it goes uh, to black and that's the end something that I didn't remember about the book was that in the book he wrote Misery's return, but then when he burned it at the end, it was a trick. He made her think he was burning it, but he really didn't. And after he killed her and got away, he published it. And they changed it for the movie. And I read something, I don't know who it was that speculated this, but somebody speculated that maybe Stephen King consciously or subconsciously thought you do have to kind of keep giving your readers what they expect from you. Mm. And and maybe, you know, that's why his initial creation, the author in the novel, maybe came to that realization. But I like in the book that he wrote the whole thing and he taunted her with it and then he burned it. Uh, yeah. I think that's more fitting. Yeah. It's it's a it's a slightly odd ending, but it's not. I mean, it, it's as good a way to end it as any, I suppose, because he could always have another crazy fan, right? Yeah. <laughs> you know, famous people have to deal with this all the time, so... Uh, right. You know. And Stephen King has said that, too, that um, he he has crazy fans, and, and this character is kind of an amalgamation of all of those people that he's encountered over the years. And I think that, you know, that's unfortunately part of the price of fame. There mm-hmm. are sick people out there who become obsessed and genuinely potentially dangerous. There was a series based on Stephen King's work uh, on Hulu called Castle Rock, and the second season served as a prequel. It told uh, Annie Wilkes' story before the events of this movie. It Critically, it was not received well at all. The first season was well-received, and then the second season wasn't, and then it didn't get picked up for a third season. I loved it. I loved the Annie Wilkes origin story that they told in season two and if you are a fan of this movie i highly recommend it Hmm. Uh, but but you know i can't as predicted we've gone well over our usual time but i don't care because this i feel like this movie merits it uh it's an excellent 
excellent movie. I think that it appeals to a wide audience, much wider than the typical stuff that we do. And, you know, if you are a a fan of thrillers, of suspense, of interesting character studies, just good acting. If if you uh, are impressed by good acting, you know, both Kathy Bates and James Caan give just amazing, amazing performances in this film. And I, I can go back to it every single time I watch it. I love it. And every single time I watch it, I am just blown away by how good it is every time you know doing a horror podcast this is this is not the first time we've done a movie that's kind of like this right somebody being held against their will um by a crazy person who has to fight for their way out you know Mm -hmm. Uh, and this movie itself could have been kind of a low budget campy forgettable film but in the hands of all these people um, it really elevates... Actually, the material is already quite good. The Roger Corman-directed Misery would have been very different <laughs> from right. the Rob Reiner-directed, William Goldman-written, and uh, Kathy Bates and James Caan-acted Misery that we get. So it's, yeah. it's really one of those one of those points, you know, where, where everything just comes together beautifully and works really well because everybody is very capable and at kind of at the, you know, top of their craft. I've seen it compared to whatever happened to baby Jane. Um, and there really are a lot of similarities that movie is, I love that movie, but it's really campy. Um, so I think that this movie could have been too. I've even seen this, uh, compared to saw where like you've got, somebody in captivity being tormented by a captor. Mm-hmm. So there there are there are lots of other movies like this, but uh, I think this one is just special. Uh, I think everything came together. The you know, like Reiner um, said, I seeing James Kahn in it, I really I can't imagine anybody else in the role. It just it it just feels right. Everything just kind of, it seems like everything came together perfectly and it just, it just worked. It's a great film. It's a great film. Go out and check it out if you haven't already and read the book, man, read the freaking book. If you're a reader, this is a fantastic book. Yeah. And you know, again, James Caan as an actor, I have uh, a ton of respect for him. I think that uh, incredibly, incredibly talented, was able to shine in a variety of different types of roles. Um, and uh, I think he's he's worthy of a lot of admiration and praise. And it's unfortunate that he's gone. But uh, as I always say, his work speaks for itself. Absolutely. Well, thank you again for listening to another episode. If you enjoyed it, please share it with a friend. If you enjoyed it, you may want to consider becoming a patron of this podcast. Please go to patreon.com slash chainsaw podcast or go to our website at twoguys.red40net.com and follow the link there to our Patreon page where uh, we offer for just a, a very small amount per month. You can help support us and keep us going with this as well as get, get a few goodies extra such as our mini-sodes that we put out uh, several times a month. Uh, we have a, an interview of us uh, 90 minutes of personal questions that our good friend Heather has given uh, as well as uh, we post the raw, unedited versions of our phone calls every week uh, in case you're interested in that. Please consider going over and supporting our podcast 
Also, uh, you can find us on Twitter. You can find us on Facebook. Please let us know what you thought of this episode, as well as any other movies you'd like us to do in the future. We will get back to doing requests very, very, very soon. Until next time, I'm Todd. And I'm Craig. With two guys and a chainsaw. Ah.